Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, cats and dogs, and canaries everywhere wondering what the heck has happened to their hero, Tweety Bird. It's Thursday at 3 o'clock, and you know what that means? It's Tea with BBP. Live from the Michigan State University campus, it's me, your host, Bill Van Patten, a.k.a. BBP, international superstar and diva. Diva of SLA. And speaking of canaries, with me are my co-hosts who each week tweet their way in the hearts of dozens, Angelica <laughs> Kramer and Walter Hopkins. Tweet, tweet. You want to say hi, Walter? I wanted to do that. Oh, do it. Man, go tweet, ahead, tweet. tweet. There you go. <laughs> tweet, tweet. Tweet, tweet. Hello, everybody. Hello, zusammen. Yeah, it's going to be one of those days, isn't it? I can't believe it's the end of January. I think we're all getting punchy. My gosh. <laughs> Um, and speaking of the end of January, what's next month? What's what's next month? Oh, I February. Don't know. February, and guess whose birthday is coming up in February? That's right, Abe Lincoln's. No, actually, it's my birthday coming up in February. <laughs> so, guess what we're going to do to celebrate the month of February? We're going to have another special contest. Oh yeah, Ooh. what's the contest? And I got special prizes. Well, here's what I was thinking: what the contest should be. I forgot to run this by Lucas, so he's probably over there in the booth going, "Bill, you didn't run this by me." But I think we need to have a greeting card contest where people create a SLA greeting card or, an, or mm. a language acquisition or language teaching greeting card, something like that. Yeah. So that is not for me. You don't, you don't want to do a language, you know, hey, this is a Bill Burt. But, yeah, but yeah, no, yeah. but any kind of greeting card that, that we can use any time of the year to send to somebody for their birthday or something, right? With a little hallmark saying in it, a little, you know, four-line thing like, uh, um, this is your special day. I hope you like SLA, that kind of, you know, nice. that kind of thing. Something really simple. So we're going to do that, and then we'll, uh, at the end of the month in February, we will select the best greeting card or birthday card, whatever people want to submit. We'll do that. And um, we're also going to, um, uh, what do you call it, um, give away some special prizes, too. Are so, you going to tell us what the special prizes are? Yes, they are. So ask me why I'm excited, Angelica. Why are you excited, Bill? Walter, ask me why I'm excited. Why are you excited? Because I get to hock a product right now. <laughs> no, the prize we're going to be giving away during the month, um, uh, instead of our standard coasters things, is a copy of my new book of short stories Ooh. called Dust Storm, Stories from Lubbock. Here it is right here. You guys can't see it, but Angelica and Walter are looking at it. Huh. My little book of short stories. Based on my time in Lubbock, Texas, um, it's going to be a mega hit, I swear. <laughs> but anyway, so during the month of February, we'll be giving those out as prizes, including at the end um, with the uh, contest. So we'll talk more about that. Sweet. We'll talk more about that next week. I like week, it. Because next week will be the first week of February. Oh, God. So we'll do the details. Okay, before we start, I got an announcement to make because I promised I would you do this. You just had an announcement. No, but th that was my Another announcement. Another one? This is, a, this is a fan announcement. Oh, one of okay. our fans out there. Um, this is a really, really good guy. His name is Sean. That's all I'm going to say. I can't give any other names. I won't say where he's from. Um, but he's working on his teacher um, certification or certificate through, through Texas Teachers. And he wrote to me, asked me if I knew anybody in Austin area who uh, could help him locate teachers to observe because uh, he has to observe like 15 hours of classes um, or something before he can do any teaching in Texas. Um, and he remembered that I got my AMA and my PhD in, 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 at University of Texas in Austin, and he thought, well, maybe I knew somebody in Austin. Well, not anymore. It's been a long time since I've been there. So I'm asking if we have any listeners out there in the Austin area who uh, are, are in connection, or even if you're not in the Austin area, but you know some Austin area teachers that Sean could hook up with to observe for his teaching certificate, just drop us a line at um, twithbvp at gmail.com, and I will forward those on to Sean. We would really appreciate, I think Sean would appreciate the help, and, and we would like to do that for Sean. So there. Great. That's my announcement. I like it. I like it. I like it when people write and tell us stuff like that. Okay, during the show, do I have to give the topic already? Well, okay, yeah, I'll give the topic of the show. Lucas, tell me I have to give the topic of the show. The, the topic of the show, it was supposed to be about, supposed to be about L1. What are you laughing at, Walter? Walter's making a face at me. I'm not making, how can I be making a face at you? I'm looking the opposite direction. Because I can, it's boring in the back of my neck. I'm, I'm just, I can <laughs> feel it. I think it's that beard you're growing that's giving you some like little, I don't know what it is. Oomph. It's giving him oomph. Something, right? I like you it. Know, right. You know, like people say, put a hair on your chest. No, Walter put hair on his face. My God, look <laughs> at that. He's really, he's like, he's moving along there. No, um, the topic today was supposed to be at L1 versus L2. Are they similar, different, and so on? And I decided the topic was so big that today we're going to focus on 
L1 and L2 similarities. And then next week, we're going to talk, focus more on differences. So I want to make it clear to people that we're actually going to focus on similarities today. So um, that has implications for some of the things that we got through email and through the Twitter sphere. Um, but uh, first, let me remind everybody that we have our, our SLA challenge question. As usual, I will read that question at some point, and you'll have time to call in with the right answer and win a prize, not a book. That's not till February. You're going to get coaster still. Um, and of course, uh, uh, we have the same uh, for the Diva Challenge question. I'll read that question at some point, and you'll have time to call in with the right answer and win a prize. Dustin is waiting on the phone lines for you to call in for those things. And of course, as usual, we have Angelica's Quote of the Week and Walter's Read of the Week. Very topical things I think they're both going to bring up. The number to reach us at is 517-884-4321. Again, that's 517-884-4321. And Walter is doing his little fingers to show us that he knows all those numbers. Walter, can you show us what an 8 is again, please? There you go. He's got 8 fingers up. 517-884-4321. Again, Dustin is on the phone lines waiting for your call. Angela will be looking at Mixler as usual. And now i got Angelic and Walter holding their fingers up to each other to show that they can. They know their numbers 1 through 8. That's wonderful. All right. So don't be shy. Pick up the phone. Please, we want you to call and talk to us. Okay. All right. Now, um, we did have a few things on Twitter that were sent in, assuming that the topic was going to be L1, L2 differences and similarities. Uh, so I'm going to just read a couple because um, I'm going to hold off and save the other ones for next week because I think they're more germane to next week. Um, and let's see. Uh, one of the things that come up repeatedly is that there's L1 interference with L2 acquisition. Um, I'm going to talk about that next week because I think that's more um, uh, more germane to talking about differences. Um, we did have somebody who uh, wrote and said um, this is related to similarities. Uh, so, well, since you guys seem to accept that L1 acquisition occurs through universal grammar, hard to say since you never seem to define what universal grammar is. Well, we will do that at some point soon, if not today's show. And first of all, acquisition doesn't happen through Universal grammar. Um, universal grammar constrains acquisition, but it does not. It, acquisitions happen through UG. So we'll talk about uh, what that means and so on. And then actually, someone said, I don't know what you guys think about this, but one of the tweets was, we need a definition of universal, universal grammar. Maybe we should put a whole show on that. That's what the person said. I don't know what you guys think. Whole, yeah. A whole show on universal grammar. We could do that. Totally. It would be. Could we get a special guest? Very technical. Mm. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I got plenty of people we can get on the phone for that as a special guest. Okay. So um, let me uh, give the. Can I get the SLI question, Luca, before I get into the topic? What do you think? I think I should give the SLI question before I start talking about L1, L2 similarities. Okay. Here we go. Ready for this? Here's our SLI challenge question. What research team coined the term creative construction in the 1970s to describe second language acquisition? Again, what research team, that means more than one person, coined the term creative construction in the 1970s to describe second language acquisition? Again, Dustin's on the phone waiting for you to call with your answer. Call in and win one of our fabulous Tea with VVP prizes. Okay, so off to the topic. Can we just clarify for some people because apparently last week some people were not wanting to call in because they already have gotten coasters. So call in, we'll send you something else. We'll send you something else. We it's got, okay. We got other stuff to sell you. We got little notepads to send. We got, what else have we got? Bags. We, we got bags. Tote bags. Tote bags to sell. Oh, those tote bags are awesome. Better than the ones you get at conferences. Mm -hmm. Much better than the ones you get at conferences. Because mm -hmm. so, it's got our logo on it, right? That's right. The only thing that would make them more fabulous is to put our pictures on them. Very true. But we're working on it. We're working we are? On. I don't want my picture on the I bag. want T-shirts. <laughs> I want T-shirts. Well, that can be arranged, Walter. <laughs> but we want you, I don't know if we want with beard or without beard. I don't know. That's Maybe I we could do, maybe we could do with a T with BVP T-shirts. On the front, it's Walter before. On the back, it's Walter after. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Okay. So our topic this week is uh, about first and second language acquisition, um, differences and similarities. And again, because this topic is so vast, I thought we'd uh, focus on fundamental similarity or, 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 or what makes first and second language acquisition similar in my ways. 
Um, so my position is the following, um, and this is based on 50 years of accumulated evidence, and that is that at their core, at their core, first and second language acquisition are indeed fundamentally the same. So I'm going to give you a synopsis. Get your pens and papers out, gang, um, unless you can type really fast as well. I'm going to make, uh, see, what, seven points here um, that suggest that there's something fundamentally similar between first and second language acquisition. Okay, point number one is this. We now know that both first and second language acquisition require the same kind of data. Okay, that is, they both require communicatively embedded input. Okay, so the same kind of data for acquisition to happen. The second thing we know about first and second language acquisition is that both are slow, piecemeal, and ordered. Okay, slow, piecemeal, and ordered with often strikingly similar patterns in that slowness, that piecemealness, and the ordering of things over time. Okay, uh, a third thing we know is, here we go, both are constrained by internal mechanisms, uh, which include universal grammar and general learning architecture. Um, and I'm sure we're going to have to define those at some point. The fourth point, both use the same parser or the same processor that takes input from the environment and converts it into something that those internal mechanisms can use. They both rely on the same processor. Fifth thing that makes them similar, both, this is the part that gets teachers sometimes, both are highly resistant to external manipulation and explicit learning. That is, explicit teaching and correction um, don't have an impact on that slow, piecemeal, and ordered development. Um, people, people, on the surface, it seems like it does, but it does not. And that's true for both first and second language acquisition. A sixth similarity is that both present what we call poverty of the stimulus situations, and they are similar ones. Poverty of the stimulus means that um, a language learner, either a first or second language learner, comes to know much more than what that learner has been exposed to in the input or in the environment. And then finally, the seventh similarity that um, is at the core of first and second language acquisition is that both, not just one, but both, involve individual variation in rate of acquisition, and both involve individual rates of success. Now, I know it's not common to talk about differential rates of success or levels of success in first language acquisition, but that's it, kind of there uh, in various ways. They're just hidden. So again, um, those are the things that I have found in the research over the years to make me think that there's something fundamentally similar about the two. That doesn't mean there aren't differences. We're going to deal with those next week. Um, and so I'll leave those dangling out there for you to react to. If you want to call in and talk about any of those, our number again is what, Walter? 517-884-4321. Okay. Um, all right. With that, uh, we will, I guess, chit-chat for a while. I don't know if anything's coming up. Um, I'm going to repeat the SLA challenge question one more time just while we, um, before I have Walter and Angelica look what's going on in either email or Mixler. Um, so here's the SLA challenge question. What research team coined the term creative construction in the 1970s to describe second language acquisition? Creative okay. Walter. Yes, sir. Have you been reading lately? I've been reading a bit. Aside from this fabulous book called what? Dust Storm. No, the, I haven't read it yet, though. That fabulous subtitle? Stories from Lubbock. There you go. It'll put it on your, I'll put it on your reading list for you. So, what have you been reading? What do you have for our audience All right, today? here we go, ladies and gentlemen. Pertaining to the topic of today, an article that came out quite some time ago in 1974. Whoa. That's old. No. Don't look at me when you say old. <laughs> <laughs> that was intentional. Wow. Um, so, yeah, it came out in 1974. This is volume eight, which means that it was like pretty early on even in this particular journal's publication. Uh, this is in the TESOL Quarterly. It's called, Is Second Language Learning Like the First? What's interesting to me is that the article actually talks about learning French by English speakers, but it's in the TESOL quarterly. Whatever, I don't get it. But here is a short 
version of the abstract. It says, A considerable array of evidence has been collected about the order and process of mother tongue acquisition. This study compares these findings to second language acquisition, learning of French by English speakers, and a natural milieu in which communication rather than form is the learner's focus of attention and where the language is heard most of the day. The study showed that in many respects, the development of comprehension of syntax and of morphological features follows the order in the mother tongue studies. Dun, dun, dun. So there you are, ladies and gentlemen. Who's the author? Take a look at it. It is, is second language learning like the first? The author is Susan Irvin Tripp in the TESOL Quarterly from June of 1974. That's a good article. Right. That's a that's a classic reading. That's a that's a classic reading. So um, why was it published in the TESOL Quarterly if it's about French? I do not know. Hmm. It's a very good question. I do not know. I was not around working on SLI stuff at the time, so... But I remember reading that in graduate school. So, yeah, that was one of the things that got me really intrigued about second language acquisition. I was actually taking a child language, first language acquisition class in graduate school. And the one of the very first paragraphs has uh, citations from Quarter, which you've mentioned many times, mm-hmm. and Selinka yeah. also that you've mentioned many times on the show. No, but that's a, that's a, is what I like about that article um, for people to read if they'd like to, to read some original research is it's, it's not a very complicated article. It doesn't have a lot of stats in it. It's not a big experiment. Um, and again, it works with, uh, f- it's with about French and not English, so that also puts another twist on things. So it's, it's a good article for people to read. Thank you, Walter. Why, thank you. Good selection. I it like that. It was a pleasure. I like that. Happy reading, everybody. All right, so what do we got going on on Mixler or email? Anybody writing to us? Because nobody's calling us. I'm going to start. I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm going to. When I start this diva tour in two weeks, the new diva tour, I'm going to start cajoling people. Let me tell you. Somebody was asking if it is true that you are in Atlanta in April. No, not in April. In a few weeks. Sorry. Yes, I will be at Holy Innocence. Um, <laughs> Holy Innocence on Monday the sixth. Yes. Is that Holy Innocence Episcopal School? Episcopal School, yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I will be doing a keynote speech and a workshop along with some other people. Carol Gav will be there, and I forget who else is I think, is Terry Wachart going to be there? I forget who's going to be there. I'll have to look and see, but yeah, I'm going to be there on February 6th. Why? Who's stalking me? Who's stalking me on Mixler? Keith was asking. Hey, Keith. Come visit me, Keith. All right. Um, nothing else going on there? I, have, I mean, I have a couple questions on email. None of them are related to the topic, though. So do you want some topical questions? Maybe Angelica has something. Yeah, Greg was asking, as you were reading the six, were they six similarities? They seven. Were seven. seven. Um, if you could define general learning architecture. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's hard to define. I can describe it. Um, general learning architecture is that stuff in your head that you use for learning anything, playing tennis how to put together something, uh, how to type, um, and, and so on. Um, and nobody really knows exactly what it is. It's not specific to language. It's just part of the human ability to learn stuff. Um, and so that works in conjunction with universal grammar to shape how language acquisition happens over time. So uh, one of the things that the general learning architecture is responsible for is keeping tabs uh, frequency, for example. So how frequent something is the input or how frequent something how frequent something is that you encounter in your environment, your general learning architecture makes note of that. And so that's how we get robustness in our heads for stuff. So things that we know really well is because it's stuff we've encountered a lot more than stuff that we know less. I mean, that's a general trend. It's not a hard and fast rule. So, so um, but the learning architecture does other things to it, makes connections and does things. But um, what exactly it is, it's, it's, it's not clearly spelled out. You know? and, and most of these things are metaphors for stuff that, that are beyond our ability to open your brain up and look at. Okay, we got a caller on the phone. We have Ginny calling from the great state of Lone Star, Texas. Ginny, are you there? I am. Saluete amiki. Hey, saluete amiki to you, too. Um, so, Jenny, you're calling from, what part of Texas are you calling from? Uh, I'm in Dripping Springs, Texas. That's where I teach. Okay. It's southwest of Austin. Okay. So, you should hook Sean up with me. Okay. Because we have German and Spanish and Latin out here. You should come out and see us. 
Oh, great. Well, shoot shoot me an email at um, tbwithbvp.com, and I will do that, okay? Okie just, doke. Just shoot, shoot me so I can just connect you guys directly, because that would be easier for you guys I to will, talk. I will shoot you. I will shoot you. No, Absolutely. don't shoot. Don't, no. <laughs> too many people want to shoot me already, Jeannie. <laughs> I don't need a tea with BBP caller to shoot me, too. <laughs> All right. So uh, you're calling about the SLA question. Is that correct? I am calling about the SLA question. Oh, Excellent. Okay, let me say the question so that people can hear it again, and then you may answer, okay? So hang on. The question is, what research team coined the term creative construction in the 1970s to describe second language acquisition? Survey says, Ginny? I didn't find a team, but I found Noam Chomsky. Noam Chomsky. Ah, no, he did not coin that term in the 70s to describe second language acquisition. Oh, well, you know what? Then Google failed me. Ah. But, and, and, and what was funny is that Mixler, somebody said the same on Mixler. So I thought, okay, well, then Google must be right. And I wasn't going to call in, but then no one was calling in. So yeah. I decided I would call in. But it's okay if I failed. That means other people should be calling in then. Right, right. Now, at least we've eliminated somebody, right? So there, there are actually two people. It was a research team in the 70s, and they only worked on second language acquisition. Noam Chomsky actually is a theoretical linguist and philosopher. He, he talked about his wife, actually. Carol worked on first language acquisition, but he himself did not work in acquisition at all. He only worked on the theory of language only. <laughs> Listen to me, only worked. He worked on the theory of language and also philosophy of language. So, um, so he, he wouldn't be the right person to talk about second language acquisition. But darn, Jenny, I was ready to send you a fabulous prize. Well, that's okay. I still have coasters. They're still functioning, but they're getting a little worn out. <laughs> All right. Well, we might, we might have, have to send. We might have to send you a little consolation, a little consolation prize. Not not another set of coasters, but something a little different. So. Okay, well, that'd be cool. Okay, and send me and send us that email so I can hook you up with Sean. Okay. Will do. Thanks a lot. Thanks for calling in, Jenny. Have a great day. Okay. Bye, Bye-bye, Jenny. Jenny. Bye. Oh, feel bad. I wanted Jenny to win something, but that's all right. Did you all get what she said? Sal- salu- uh, salutate amiki? Of course. Walter, did you? I, I mean, I can guess what it is. I've, n- <laughs> I've not taken Latin, but I can pretty much figure what, out what she was saying. Was that input comprehensible to you? Yes. Okay, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Walter used his general learning mechanisms to, de- uh, to help decode it, and then his, his UG and other stuff starting to put some hidden stuff on there as he processes it internally. There you go. He's a smart one. All right. Mr. Walter, he really <laughs> is so smart. Oh, no, okay, sorry. no, please. We got, we got people calling. We got people calling. All right. Um, it looks like we have another caller on the phone who wants to talk about the SLA challenge question. Um, it's Terry from Ohio. Terry, you on the phone? I am. Hey, Terry. I think I know which Terry this is. How are you doing? Yes, I'm doing just fine. Thank you. But I know I'm going to see you in Ohio in the next month, and or the end of March, and I didn't want to get chastised for not calling in. Oh, <laughs> no, I would never chastise you for not calling in. You you do enough work. You don't need to call in. We want oh, to call. Yeah, so, um, so, um, so you're calling. You're calling from the Columbus area, and you're going to answer the SLA challenge question, correct? I am. Okay, so let me repeat and the question I, one more time. Okay. Here we go. What research okay. team coined the term creative construction in the 1970s to talk about second language acquisition. And Terry from Columbus says... Heidi Dulay and Marina Burt. Ding, ding, Yay! ding, ding, ding. Woo-hoo! Yay! Hey, there we go. Okay. Excellent. Yes, that actually... Heidi Dulay and Marina Burt, who also were the founders... Uh, not the founders, but the pioneers of the morpheme studies in the 70s as well, uh, with Spanish and Chinese kids learning English. Um, they uh, created the term creative construction. And then Steve Krashen actually adopted that term a little bit later in his work with them. Actually, nobody knows this, but Heidi Dulay, Marina Burt, and Steve Krashen wrote the very first book ever on second language acquisition. Hmm. Did you know that? Called, I think it's called Lang 2. Yep, L2. Lang 2 or L2, I forget. Yeah. L2. Yep. Yes, and they I have it on my yeah. shelf. And, yeah, and creative construction is is featured prominently in that book. Well, great for you, Terry. Thanks for calling in. Any news from Ohio before sure. we let you go? Anything you want to tell us? Hey, we're getting geared up to have you here the end of, end of March, and visitors are welcome. Well, great, great. Everybody, um, 
what Terry's talking about is the Ohio Foreign Language uh, Association Conference, which is going to be in Columbus on March 30th and 31st. Is that correct? And April 1st. And April 1st, yes. So, um, mm-hmm. so if you're in the area, stop on in. Um, they'd love to have you there. Wait, so when is our show Secret. happening? On that Saturday at so noon. So April 1st? Saturday. We're Yay. having a Tea with BBP <laughs> show on April Fool's Day? We're going to have April Fool's Day in Columbus, oh, Ohio. Oh, no. Yeah. That'll be fun. We'll be do jokes on each other. Yes. All right. Okay, and Terry, Bill, thanks for coming. you're doing the keynote, and we're happy, happy you're coming. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to be doing a gig there in the morning, so yeah. Okay, Terry, okay. thanks a lot, and uh, have a mm. great rest of your day. Thank you. Okay, all right, bye-bye. Bye, Bye, Terry. Oh, that was nice. It was nice when somebody got the (laughs) question right. Well, now, as usual, we have a second question. It has nothing to do with SLA. Um, So I will do that question now, and then we'll get back into the topic of L1, L2 similarities. Um, The Diva Challenge question. Here it is. Are you ready for this? Bring it on. Do not shut out the answers, you two. (laughs) I'm sure we won't. I think you're safe. (laughs) Here's the question. My favorite diva and personal idol, Bette Midler, will star in a revival of what musical on Broadway this spring, 2017? I repeat, my favorite diva and personal idol, Bette Midler, will star in a revival of what musical on Broadway this spring? Yes, I'm so excited. Yes, I'm so excited. Are you going to go to Broadway? Gosh, I'm for gonna, the opening, ah, you know it, you know it. <laughs> Front row seats. Probably. I'm not going to go to the opening. Um, it actually, oh, it actually, with the way they do Broadway now, is the show will run for like a couple of weeks, and then they have its official opening. So it's already been running, but then they'd have the opening night is actually a little bit later. I guess that's how they get the kinks out. They used to do the show on the road first. I don't know if you remember this back in the old days in Broadway, they'd like play Connecticut and Rhode Island and, and New Jersey, and then they take it to Broadway once they got the kinks out. But the, I think they just start on Broadway, get the kinks out, and then they announce it and and have an opening night. Okay, so there we go. All right. Um, email questions, Mixler? Something? We don't have to talk about L1, L2 similarities. Um, I think people want to talk about differences. I'll do that next week. Greg just keeps asking questions here. Go ahead, Greg. We like Greg. Would you support... Call in, Greg. Wow. If you're on Mixler, you can call in. Yeah, I told him that already, but (laughs) alas. Um, Would you support non-targeted instruction, or is targeting frequent structures to increase frequency okay with you? Well, it's not un-okay with me. I mean, (laughs) sure. Why not? I mean, the, the, um, you can try to accelerate acquisition by targeting non-frequent things or less frequent things and making them more frequent. That's called input flooding in the literature. Um, and uh, it's, it's a hit or miss, depending on what it is you're targeting, uh, its effect. Um, in Winnie Wong's book on input enhancement, she has a chapter on input flood. Um, people can look at it there and see what she says about it. I think her conclusion is, if I recall correctly, is that it's kind of hit or miss. It's not always effective to do what you want it to do. But it doesn't hurt people. And as and, and long as you're focused on meaning and communication, then I, you know everything else is going okay. So um, it's not a bad thing. Right? Right. That's what I would say. Cool. Thanks. Well, there you go, Greg. All right, we got uh, another phone call. We got somebody, hey, from the great state of New Jersey. Look at that. Um, Lynette, are you on the line? Yes, I am. Hi, guys. How are you? Buenas tardes. Buenas tardes, Lynette. What part of New Jersey <laughs> are you coming from? Um, Union City. Wow, okay. You know, I, I taught at Rutgers for one year. Oh, okay. That's a little far. A little yeah. bit. I lived in New Brunswick. I was actually, it was, I was ah. in graduate school. I was a research assistant and I taught for one year at the same time. Oh. It, was, it was an interesting experience. Know. Yeah, I liked Rutgers. It was fun. Oh, yeah, oh, I never been there. And, <laughs> uh, yeah, and being a California boy from the Bay Area, it was my first experience with the East Coast. And it was, it was fun. Oh. Let me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> I bet. So what are you calling um, about? What's up? So I'm on my way to NJCU right now. I'm taking my master's and I'm going to my applied linguistics. And today we are going to discuss an article called uh, Research is In, Drills Are Out. And I was like, oh, I know who, who wrote that. So I was so excited to tell uh, my colleagues about you. And so we're going to discuss that. Hello? Yes, I'm, I'm listening to you. Go ahead. And, I'm smiling. Um, one of the 
topics that you uh, you mentioned today, which is the acquisition on L1 and L2, and it talks about internal mechanisms. And I believe that was like number six. I'm not sure. They, oh, today? Am I right? I don't know. It's yes. like, uh, yeah, no, like number three. Both both first okay. language and second language are constrained by the same internal yes. mechanisms. Yeah. Okay, and that article talks about that. And I am very curious why, while I was reading this article, I was like so curious, how come... Output is not such a big part of it. Like everything is mostly about input, and which is, of course, I agree with that. But I don't understand how come output is not like doesn't have as much emphasis as input. Because uh, I think it's essential, of course. But uh, I should. And I heard you the other day talk about that also. But I usually hear you in the podcast, so I can't go live. <laughs> I was like today, I'm going to listen, so I'm going to call and I'm going to ask. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Um, just to, to back up a little bit, let the audience know that okay. um, what Lynette's referring to is an article that Winnie and I wrote in 2003 that got published in Foreign Language Annals. It caused quite a controversy. I don't know, Lynette, if you're reading the back and forth between us and some other people that happened in 2003, 2004 because of that article, but you should read all of that because it's all very interesting stuff. Um, and uh, so, um, But yes, uh, and that and that paper we are arguing that the evidence is in and things like okay. drills are out. They don't do anything yeah. for language acquisition. Now, to get to your actual question about output, um, again, it depends on how you define what language is and what acquisition is, okay? And the mainstream model um, is one in which language is something that resides in your head, Okay, yeah. it is whatever you want to call it, a network, a representation, or whatever. It's this abstract, implicit system. And all mainstream models, again, with the exception of several, all mainstream models, the ones that produce most of the research and the ones that, that actually have taken us the furthest in thinking about language acquisition, all concur that, that whatever's in your head gets there via input. That input are the data um, for that, for that, um, for that system to develop to grow, and the reason for that is because the mechanisms in your head, whatever they are, whatever those mechanisms are in your head, they can only work on input data. They're not designed to work on anything else. So that's why the role of output is not fundamental to get language in your head. It, I mean, it doesn't play the same role as input. Okay. Okay. Oh, so okay. that doesn't mean output doesn't play a role. It can't play the same role as input. So as we said before, what output does when a learner interacts, if a learner can say anything, that, that, ha that helps the learner get more input from somebody else maybe. That helps the learner might get more comprehensible input, more input that is targeted toward that learner because the way the person perceives how that person is talking uh, and so on. So um, output might play an indirect role, but it cannot play a direct role um, or, or the same role that input does in the development of language in your head. Does, okay. does oh, help? Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. I wanted to ask a while ago because I heard you. But I, yeah, I, and, that, and that's actually, <laughs> that's actually the, and that's one of the fundamental similarities between first and second language acquisition. What I just said there about the role of input and the role of output. There's um, a first language acquisitionist would say the same thing. Um, and so, um, and, and most of us in second language acquisition would say something like that. Even if we disagree on the details, um, the overarching thing would be the same uh, for most of us. So, well, Annette, thank you. You got, are you on your way to thank class you now? Are you on your way to class now? I am going. It's horrible traffic, but I'll get there. And oh, I'm gonna all right. Tell them that I spoke with you today. So well, tell the, tell your class I said hi. Who's your instructor? Who's your teacher? Um, her name is Dr. Farina. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, tell her I said hi, and tell everybody in your class that Tea with BBP, the group here, says hi. Okie dokie. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks. Adios, chicos. Adios. Bye, Lena. Adios, Lena. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Ciao. Oh, that was nice. Nice comment. That was a good question. Okay. That, well, they're all good questions, but but the way... She just had a nice little bubbly personality. I like that. <laughs> Angelica. Yes, sir. Do you have a quote for us before we take our next phone call? I do, even do. though this is almost better suited for next week, but here it goes. Um, this is from Julia Hershenson. Well, maybe you can repeat it next week. How's that, too? Yeah. <laughs> doesn't hurt to say it twice. <laughs> right. Um, this is from her book, Language Development and Age, uh, published in 2007 by Cambridge University Press. And the quote goes as follows. 
Plentiful empirical evidence from a variety of sources indicates that the difference between first and second language acquisition is, above all, a quantitative one, not a qualitative one. Uh, it's, the differences are quantitative, not qualitative. Mm-hmm. Ah, okay. So in other words, she's saying that they're similar um, and that what we see as differences are not because they're dissimilar, it's because of, it's just a degree Mm-hmm. A greater or lesser degree of similarity. Yep. Okay. If I can say it that way. I don't know if, if Julia would say it that way. Nice quote. What was the name? Let everybody know the name of that book again. Language Development and Age. Julia Hershenson, 2007. Yeah. Julia is a really good scholar. She's a very careful reader of the research and done some good research on her own. She's actually at the University of Washington. Hmm. She's very good. Very good. Good shout out there to Julia. Is there anyone you don't know? <laughs> Say yeah, what? No kidding. Is right? there anyone you don't know? There's certain people in Washington, D.C. I don't know. Oh, <laughs> let's keep it that way. Okay. All right. We have another call on the phone. We have Andrea. Andrea, are you on the line? Yep. This is Andrea. Hey. Oh, Andrea. Not Andrea, but Andrea. Andrea awesome. Yes. Andrea, where are you calling from? Dallas. Dallas, Texas. Texas. Two phone calls from Texas today. Look at that. The Lone Star people are showing up. I love it. Stars at night are shining bright. I tell you, deep in the heart of Texas. Texas. Oh, Walter. <laughs> <laughs> Such enthusiasm, Walter. <laughs> Andrea, are you originally from Texas or you're from somewhere else? No, I'm from Illinois. Ah, what part of Illinois? Central, near Peoria. Oh, okay, yeah. You know, I was at Urbana for a long time before I left uh, the state. Yeah. yeah, I went from Urbana to Chicago and then I left. And Some of your, your finest work from there. Oh, well, you're sweet to say that. Thank you. Destinos, you know, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so Andrea, you're calling because you're going to answer the diva question? Yes, I'm so excited. Oh, well, well let me, I, what did I do with it? I had it down, I had, I moved it somewhere. Gosh, I'm getting, look, I'm having an Alice moment. Where's my diva question? Uh, okay, here we go. <laughs> okay, here's my diva challenge question. Let me repeat it for everybody, Andrea, and then you can give the answer. Here it goes. My favorite diva and personal idol, Bette Midler, will star in a revival of what musical on Broadway this spring? Take it away, Andrea. Hello, Dolly. And yeah. Hello, Dolly it is. Ding, 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 ding. Very good. Yay, thank you. Did you, you know that, Andrea, or did favorites. you have to look it up? No, I knew that. You know what? Barbara Streisand is, to me, what Bette Midler is to you. So when I heard that Bette was going to be in Hello, Dolly, I got really excited because Hello, Dolly was the first one of the first musicals my mom brought home when we were kids. So we grew up on... Hello, Dolly, and Barbara Streisand, and Funny Girl, and all those others after that. So, yeah. Well, I think I said this before on the air, but I'll say it again, because I love Barbara Streisand, too, is that I'm going to start a campaign. You ready for this, Andrea? Maybe you can help me with this. Mm-hmm. Sure. I think we should do Barbara Streisand and Bette Midler in a remake of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. <laughs> would that not yes, be fabulous? Could you imagine two of them? That would be a tour de force. <laughs> now, that would be a remake worth doing, I tell you right now. Yeah. Have they ever, they've never done anything together, have they? No, they have not. They have not. Yeah, and he would should. know for they sure. They really should. Yeah, they have not. They, yeah. uh, no, they haven't, no, they have not done anything together. They've attended each other's concerts and things, but they haven't done anything together themselves. So. Well, good for you. Thank you for answering that question. Okay. Do you have anything about SLA you want to talk about, or are you just calling about the Diva Challenge question? Well... You know what? I thought I would tell you. I've, uh, you know, I listen to your show a lot, and thank you for all that you guys do. I think it's, um, it's just been really wonderful to learn so much about second language acquisition. And um, anyway, so you've been talking a lot about the way you propose or you present in your lessons and tasks. And so I was reading up some of that or information about that on your website. And I normally teach more storytelling based TPRS. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. But I have a language lab, a drop-down lab with uh, headsets that the kids use. And so I was thinking, you know, how could I maybe use those to do tasks? And so this week I actually set up a task um, talking about we have a novel that our whole school one read is reading. And so I was trying to incorporate that into my Spanish lessons as well. And so we did a little task asking questions about uh, water conservation as part of the theme of the book. And so some of the questions we were, I was asking the kids to find out how long do people spend in the shower and different ways, how much time they use water. And so we did that. And then we analyzed the information together, um, all in the target language. And it was a lot of fun. So, uh, anyway, so thank you so much for that. That's a great, that's a great idea for a task. Walter, write that down. We can use that here. No, it is true. We have a unit on, on that in, in one of our things. We can actually 
that that's a great idea because looking how people use water, <laughs> wastewater, water comes. Well, and then we talked about how, and then we took that. What's the average flow of water? So our average person spends like 15 minutes in the shower, and that's right. two gallons per minute. And right. oh my gosh, how much water! And then we looked at. The book that we're reading is about people in Africa who have to walk to get water. Right, And right. so then comparing to, oh, a family in Africa only uses five gallons of water a day, and you use 20 gallons in one shower yourself. So yeah. anyway, I think it was really eye-opening for the kids, and it was fun to be able to do that in the target language. And yeah. Just, that's so. a great idea. And what I like about that, what yeah. you really understood, Andre, which is great, is that the point of the task is to find something out of ourselves and the world around us and then yeah. and, and so come took, to, and come to some kind of conclusion, you know, and you do it through the second language in some way. Good for you. Yeah. Well, excellent. I like that idea. Well, good for you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for sharing right. with that. Well, thanks so much. Okay. All right. Well, have a great day. And your present will be on its way shortly. Okay. Thanks so much. Okay. Talk to you guys thanks later. Bye. Thanks for calling, Andrea. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye, Andrea. Bye-bye. Thanks, Walter. Thanks, Angelica. Bye. Bye. Um, boy, Texas is showing like it is showing up today, isn't it? Well, I tell you, those other states better get in there. That Texas is taking over. I tell you, it's taking over, taking over. All right. So, what do we got going on, kids? On uh, email or Mixler, anything? I will allow <laughs> Angelica to. Uh, I- Why well, it's just Greg again? That's okay. Oh, I'm sure there are other people. Come on, now. Greg, call in, Greg. I know, Greg, right? Call in, Greg. Slacker, okay, here Greg. is. I mean, here is what he wrote, Bill. When you say that any focus on form should be meaning based and input oriented, could you give an example of such a task or activity? Uh, yeah, normally they're not tasks. So focus on forms or focus on form is an activity, as you know, distinction that I make between exercise activities and tasks. Um, and so text enhancement is one, for example, where you'll have a reading or short reading, maybe a couple paragraphs. And what you do is you purposely embed a form in there that you, you want to highlight with bolding or color coding or something like that. Um, and so as people are reading for meaning, interacting with the meaning, their attention, quote unquote, is drawn to those forms as they read. You don't talk about them necessarily. Um, but so, for example, you could embed the passive Let's say you're an ESL teacher, um, or in Spanish, the se passive. Um, you can embed it, you know, 10, 12 times in a text, and it's highlighted. So, you, you know, and your, but your focus is not on those things. Your focus is on the content, and you're working through the meaning of the, of the text. So that's a text enhancement is an example of that. Another example would be processing instruction that I worked on, which is um, uh, where you manipulate input in certain ways to force learners to process form and how form relates to meaning. Um, and it's, that's a really complicated, we could do a whole show. Maybe I should do a show on processing instruction because that's, that's an, that's an interesting one. Um, well, that's your primary field of research, is it? Well, it has been. It's not, mm-hmm. it's one of my areas. Yeah. Probably one of my, one of my two main areas. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that. I mean, I did found the field of processing instruction. So yeah. Um, the, uh, and then there is uh, input flood we talked about earlier, which is just making things more frequent in the input, um, while you're talking or reading, just embed things more and more. Um, then there is such a thing. Recasts are another one where so if Walter says something funny, I simply say it back to him as part of natural flow of conversation. Um, so that so those are all examples of how you manipulate something in the input or manipulate the input in certain ways to either draw learners' attention or, in my case, with processing instruction, to try to push the processing strategies in a certain direction. I hope that answers your question, Greg. There's a um, Winnie Wong's book on... Input Enhancement is a great um, book if you want to know a little bit about that and read about it. Very readable. Um, that was published in 2005. can't believe it's already 11 years old. My gosh. Huh. Uh, but it's a great little book. Very short book. You can read it in an afternoon if you want. And she covers input flood, text enhancement, recasts, processing instruction. I don't know what else she covers in her dicta gloss and other kinds of things. So Walter's already pulling it up on his um, laptop computer to look at it. So it's lovely. It is. It's a good book. It's a good book. Okay. Anything else? Walter, we must have something in sure. email. Or... Yeah, I have a question here from Christina. Christina. She's a Spanish teacher in Southern California. And her question is what is a performance task? Is it Ooh. using authentic text? Is it just a speaking activity or a writing activity? Can a performance task be a project? Here's the context. She says, my department wants to move to performance tasks, but I don't have a clear definition of what is a performance task. They just want 
to do a writing activity with a rubric? This may seem like an easy question, but I don't have a clear answer. Could you please give me some examples of what a performance task looks like if it's not just a writing activity? Christina, that's a really good question. And the reason you're confused or befuddled, or as we would say in Yiddish, you are flummoxed. Um, I'm not even Yiddish, but or Jewish, <laughs> but still, I know all the words. Because I watch Bette Midler movies. No, you don't. I know all the words. I'm sure like you that. do. No, no, no. I'm quoting you. I don't. Oh, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, but Christina, it's easy to be confused about that because performance task is one of those terms that that can mean anything you want it to mean. It's an umbrella term. It's like saying, I bought a car. What kind of car did you buy? Well, I bought a car. Well, was it diesel, electric, or gas? Um, does it convertible uh, or a hardtop? Uh, was it two-door or four-door? You know, you could just go, the list is on. I mean, a car is a term that can mean a lot of different things. You get a Jeep. Is it high to the ground, low to the ground? You know, was it a luxury car or not? I mean, so. And performance tasks are like that. They can be just about anything. The, 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 the key here is performance, which means learners are doing something. They're not showing you what they know by taking a test. They're performing something in a second language or the, or the, or the language they're learning um, to, to do something with the language, to communicate something, and or to be involved in communication. And task, because there should be an outcome that um, is not uh, about the language, like a test, like a paper and pencil test, um, or a multiple choice test, but an outcome that, again, is communicative. Either they're communicating or they're understanding something. So performance task could be a reading task um, where you have to read and summarize in your own words. Um, or uh, you read something and you have to tell me in 50 words or less the main points of what you just read. Um, so that you know, that's an example of a reading task. A writing task would be you probably got those. You've already talked about those in your in your question. Uh, a speaking task could be any of the task we we talk about on the show. Um, Andre earlier called and talked about that water conservation task, um, where students had to do a little work where in the second language, find about water flow, uh, gallons per minute coming out of the shower, every time you flush a toilet, how much water is going down, and so on and so forth. And you put all that information together, and then you come to some conclusion. Um, and do it all for the second language. That is a performance task as well. So a performance task can be anything you want it to be if the learners are performing some act of communication in the second language. And it's a task because the outcome is some kind of information, not some demonstration of language knowledge. Um, and so um, th- you're not going to go find anywhere, Christina, some precise definition in, you know, Here's a template for performance task. It really can be just about anything you want it to be. So, sorry, I can't help you there with anything more than that, but that's the way it is. Well, and Melanie actually has a suggestion here on Mixler. She says that ACTFL has published samples of performance tasks, too, so maybe check out the ACTFL website. I'm sure they have. Uh, Again, they have to publish samples because the the definition itself doesn't help you. Mm -hmm. So uh, all we can keep doing is providing examples for people, and then it's like input. After you start to see a bunch of performance tasks, then you kind of know what one is, right? You develop yep. this implicit idea of what a performance task is. So that would be a good idea, um, Christina. So go to the website. And um, um, if she's li- I guess she's listening or she'll listen this weekend because she wouldn't have written us an email. Um, she wasn't a fan of the show or a listener of the show. So go to, go to ACTFL's site um, and see what's there. Um, and the question about performance tasks always is evaluation. Um, that's always the toughie. So... Well, that, thank you, Melanie, for reminding us of that. What else is going on, kids? Otherwise, i got to start singing. <laughs> All right. I have another question. Again, these Let's aren't look out. related. Look how I knew Walter had something up his sleeve. You well, I mean, I, you know, there are questions that come in over time, and they don't necessarily pertain to this week's topic, but I can still That's throw them out there. Right. So. I think people are waiting for next week to see what the differences are. That's what it is. Okay, so here we go. This is from Gina, and I don't know where Gina is from, but she would like to know what value pop-up grammar has, if any, when communication is the goal of the language classroom. Um, It depends on exactly what pop-up grammar is. Um, So, I mean, pop-up grammar is, um, you know, I'm not big on any of those kinds of things, any kind of overt grammar stuff, um, even pop-up grammar. Um, 
because I, explicit information, I just don't know what it does, if it does anything. Um, in general, in terms of communication flow, if at a point, I mean, this happened, I had a pop-up grammar thing with my independent study students today in my office. And one of them said, well, in Spanish, well, why do you say it that way? And I had to give them a really brief answer, a really brief little, you know, three-sentence grammar thing because Spanish does it this way and English does it that way. It's just different. I mean, it wasn't really an explanation. It was just, you know, something to, some, something to tell them. Oh, I know. It was, it was about passes. It was about um, um, he wanted to know why, why I kept telling him um, I, I kept recasting things from passives, uh, from, you know, es influido por and es sacado por and all that kind of stuff too, you know, se influye, se saca, and so on. And he goes, why do you keep changing those when we use them? I go, because, and I had to tell him real quick. Um, because it's just a question that comes up. So I, I, I guess the, the, the point of pop-up grammar is if it fits within the context of what you're doing and it doesn't interrupt communication, then it's fine. And if it's something that students want to know, you just tell them. Um, but I, I'm, I'm, I may have a wrong idea about what pop-up grammar is um, because I think it occurs different ways and under different methods. So there. Well, there you have it, Gina. There you have it. There's the answer to your question. Now, I'm going to go back to the Twitter thing for just a minute because there was something that... Um, Senor Schwab says this about our topic for today, um, L1 and L2 acquisition. He actually says that they are fundamentally the same. Only external factors are different. Internal factors the same. Kind of what we were saying earlier about the internal mechanisms the same and so on. Um, so the fact that he says only external factors are different. Um, we'll get into that next week, but I kinda, I'm kind of intrigued by what he means by that. So maybe we'll get Senor Schwab to write us a little email, and maybe he'll call in us next week and tell us what he thinks the external factors are. But we are going to touch upon that next week. We talk about differences between first and second language acquisition. Um, and I think maybe what I'll do real quick, because this keeps coming up, I'm going to just tell people... Again, I just got another question about what UG is, what universal grammar is. And universal grammar um, is not a learning device. Some people think it's a learning device. It's a thing that makes you learn language. And it's not. Universal grammar is a constraint, a set of constraints. Um, and, and it's often called a human endowment or because animals don't have it. And it's the thing that makes languages look the way they do. So all languages, whether you're learning a language or whether you already have a language, must conform to the constraints of universal grammar. And uh, it's, it, it contains three basic things. It contains an inventory of features so that a language must select from this inventory of features and can't create willy-nilly new ones. Um, second thing it does is it um, has a set of principles that all languages must obey. Um, so, for example, one might be the extended projection principle that says that all sentences must have subjects. Now, don't get confused when I say that. doesn't mean that the subject appears in the sentence that you can hear it because there are hidden subjects as well. Um, uh, so, but it has to have a subject, and the subject has a very, very technical definition of universal grammar. Don't think of subject the way you think of it. Subject has a very technical definition of universal grammar. And another example uh, of something that's in universal grammar, uh, it would be phrase structure, that all languages consist of phrases, um, and that phrases are hierarchically ordered. They're stacked. Um, so language is not linear. It is hierarchical in nature. So these are all things that universal grammar contains, and all languages have to obey these properties. And I always tell people that when it, the way to think about universal grammar is like the U.S. Constitution, right? So let's say Angelica is one state and Walter is another state, right? Mm -hmm. So there are certain things. You are free to pass any laws you want in the state of Angelica and the state of Walter except for what kind of laws? Is this a trick question? Exactly. <laughs> no, your state in the United States, you are free to pass any kind of law except what kind of law? A law when that violates against the, the U.S. Law. Constitution. Yeah. Oh. So exactly. So um, this is why we say that languages are constrained and language acquisition is constrained. Learners cannot just create any old thing in their head they want. 
It's like the Constitution is sitting in there saying, nope, sorry, that's out. Um, and that violates UG. That violates the constraints and violates the principles of UG. Um, things that aren't covered by UG are fine. Um, and so what people don't realize, I think what people don't realize, people think that languages are all so vastly different. And languages actually are quite similar. They're only different on the surface. And UG is about the underlying abstract nature of language. And, so, and that is why we say language acquisition constraint because learners, as they're going through language learning uh, or language acquisition, create very deep and abstract things about language as, as the language grows in their heads um, that's, that, that aren't necessarily what we see on the surface. Okay, because we're always, we just don't think about language this way. Um, and so it's a hard thing for people to grasp. Um, but the research has been out there for years now, um, for years, that shows that first and second language grammars are constrained in strikingly similar ways, if not the same ways. So there, there's a little lesson on UG. How was that, Walter? Lovely. Lovely, you liked it? Oh, of course. Your beard is curling up at the edges. That's how much you liked it. <laughs> we're going to have to tweet a, a, a picture of Walter this next week so people can see this beard we're talking about. Have I been the only one that thinks that's funny? I don't know. I think I, so, yeah. I think it's funny. Ah, well, anyway. Nothing on Mixler, nobody calling in. My gosh. I know what's wrong nobody with you. It's a quiet day I here know. today. So I know. I'm going to fall asleep. So I know. I what is keep this? listening to Bill. What? I mean, <laughs> sorry, I didn't say that out loud, did I? <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> and I was I was refraining from saying what I was going to say about looking at you, but I but so I'm going to keep that to myself, Walter. You know I'm having Wal dinner with Walter tonight, so it's going to be an interesting dinner. Very nice. Where are you guys going? He'll be intrigued by my family. He doesn't care about having dinner with me. <laughs> oh, your kids and I get along great. Yeah, we talk about you behind your back. That's why Walter doesn't let me babysit. Nice. <laughs> He's afraid his kids are going to learn all these bad words, uh -huh. and then I'm going to be talking about him behind his back. Well, right, Lisa. He's absolutely I right. I will. Yeah. <laughs> it's like nobody lets me babysit their kids because it's like they come back and say, "You learn what? <laughs> you learn what? What was that word? What was that word you just said?" <laughs> I would. I, I would tell. I would tell. I would tell Walter's kids, now when you go home tonight, make sure you ask your daddy the following question and ask it just like this. <laughs> and then Walter would stop talking to me. No, I would not do that to you, Walter. All right. Walter's no more SLA stuff. No more L2 <laughs> stuff. No more L2 stuff. Nada. Nothing. Not a Mixler. Nothing. No. Not even... Not even Eric's on there, like, sending Oh, my goodness, yeah, absolutely. Eric's, Eric's not on, on there. there, like... No, he's solving the world's problems on, on Mixler, yeah. as we, always. Yeah, we need... Uh-oh, uh we, we cannot have a caller coming in right now. Why not? Oh, apparently we have a last-minute caller. Jenny's calling back. Jenny's calling back? <laughs> Daniel okay. says it's good. Jenny's calling back. We have, like, we have, like, 30 seconds for Jenny, though. Jenny, are you there? I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. Jenny, I have, like, 30 seconds for you. Well, all I was going to do is I was going to say, hey, what about that comment I threw out on Twitter about the expectations of a three-year-old learning their native language is different from a 16 or a 50-year-old learning a second language? Oh, yeah, yeah. Because We're going to talk about that next week. That came up in some of the other Twitter things. Aww. Maybe that Because that's... That's for differences with languages. Okay. Right, right, right. Those are those are those may relate to what Senor Schwab is referring to as external differences. What is expected of people as opposed to what people can actually do and how it works in their heads. So, all right. Well, okay then. I've whetted your appetite and everybody else's appetite for next week's show. Well, that's, that's right. great, Jenny. Thanks. Okay, I got to run. I got to do my acknowledgments. I'm waving welcome. the Bye. flag at me. Okay. Bye, Jenny. Bye, Jenny. Bye. Thanks. All right. Acknowledgements. Here we go. we got to wrap up. Oh, my God. I'm going to do this really fast now. Uh, we want to thank our technical producer, Daniel Trego, our media producer, Luca Giappone, our talented and trusted call handler and missile man, Dustin DeFelice, our wonderful assistant production manager, Jeff Maloney, the College of Arts and Letters at MSU, especially our dean, Christopher Long. Thank you, Christopher. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed in this program do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Letters, any of our sponsors, not that we have any, uh, or any other official <laughs> entity of Michigan State University. And, of course, we thank all of you listeners out there, and especially the people who call in. Yay! All right. <laughs> Join us next week as we continue our discussion about L1, L2 similarities, except now we're going to talk about differences.
Until then, have a great weekend. Happy second language acquisition. Adios. Tschüss, bis nächste Woche.